We are interrupting our sermon series in the book of Acts to bring you this special Christmas service sermon this morning from Luke chapter 2. The title of today's sermon is Glory Unwrapped from Luke 2 verses 1 through 20. Well, last week, my wife Cindy took our four-year-old daughter to the cardiologist. Not because there was anything wrong that we knew, but it was advised that we do a little precautionary testing done for our daughter. Why? Because our daughter, Lana, who's four, is adopted. And our medical history on her is scant, or at least it's relatively unintelligible to us in English. But there was something that surprised Cindy when she got to the doctor's office. It was the sonogram. For the first time ever, Cindy, mommy, heard the heartbeat, the amplified heartbeat of her daughter. And that swishing sonogram noise that is made by that pen or whatever you call it, as it runs across the beating chest. One little beating heart. And Cindy cried. As she relayed the story to me, she said, only if I could have been there to hear Lana's heartbeat in the womb, like my other children. If only I was there at Lana's birth, the day She was born. Church, this morning, we are going to go back to the day when God was born in the flesh, when God's glory was unwrapped in the form of a child, when God's heartbeat literally was felt and heard for the very first time. Perhaps you're here this morning. And you know God. You're well acquainted with the scripture we just read, Luke 2. You've heard it your whole life. You've grown up reading it. Perhaps you've read it again and again during this Advent season. You know God is real. But he feels a little distant to you this morning. And it's been a while since you've heard his heartbeat, so to speak. That is, since you've sensed God's nearness, or felt the depth of his care and his love for you. Perhaps there are others of you this morning who are here, and you're wondering, is God even real? You might not say it out loud, but you know what? You think it. You think it perhaps even often. Is he real, and where is he? Perhaps the events that occurred in Connecticut, Newtown, Connecticut, last Friday, December 14th, the massacre of innocent children, perhaps that has only elevated in your mind and amplified the question, where is God? Does he exist? Does he even care? Does he even care about me? Does he even care 
about the world in which we live. May I just say to you this morning, church, that God is real, He is not lost, and He is not hiding. But so often we look for God, and we look for glory in all the wrong places. But this morning, this morning, we're going to find God in the pages of Scripture, Luke 2. We're going to find God in the craggy, barren hillsides of Palestine. We're going to find God in the darkness of night. We're going to find God in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, in the smelliest of cribs, in places that you and I would least expect. And my prayer and hope is this, that you would hear God's heartbeat, that you would know once again His scandalous love and care and mercy for you. And for some of you, that you would hear God's heartbeat, His saving grace for you, for this very first time, as we look to Jesus, the glory of God unwrapped for you and me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, dear Jesus, this morning we ask that we would know this good news of great joy personally, the gospel. Lord, I ask that we would not just know it this morning, that we would feel it. Oh, Lord, help us. For some of us, once again, to know the wonder in your gospel. For others to know it and feel it for the very first time. So, Lord, I'm asking this morning that you would engage our hearts as we interact with your heart. And, Lord, I know you're here, but just be with us in a special way this morning. Be with our children who are here with us. Give them attentive ears to understand and to believe, I pray. Amen. 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 Well, let us start our reading this morning from Luke 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 to begin. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be, should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's stop there for a moment. I'm so grateful for these very familiar words. Here we have a concise summary of Christ's birth as a real and historical event, one grounded in a place and in a time. But may I suggest, if this 
verses 1 through 7, is all that you know of Christ's birth? Oh, you've missed the greatest wonder. You've missed the Christmas story. You've missed God's glory. For what we have, church, in these first seven verses is not so much glory, but as one author put it, the scent of scandal. Notice that Joseph, verse 5, was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. His betrothed, that is the one whom he was legally engaged to. Who was with child. In other words, unwed Mary was pregnant. In Jewish circles, in this day and age, this was scandalous. Have you ever wondered why Joseph traveled to Bethlehem with Mary? You see, Joseph was the head of the household as one who was legally engaged, betrothed to Mary. As the head of the household, he was the only one who needed to travel to Bethlehem for the Roman census. So why did Joseph and Mary go together? Perhaps Joseph didn't want to leave Mary in the final last days of her pregnancy. Perhaps he wanted to be there when Mary had her first child, not knowing how long the journey to Bethlehem and back would take. Or maybe, just maybe, Joseph wanted to protect Mary from the shame and the scandal of giving birth to Jesus in her village. To shield Mary's eyes from those condemning eyes, from those who saw Jesus as an illegitimate child. We don't know for sure. But we do know this from Luke 1. This child to be born Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary. And there's a lot more to the story than meets the eye. Amidst the scent of scandal, oh, there is glory, glory to be found. And that glory is found in verses 8 through 14. Only Luke in his gospel provides these next verses. For what we have preserved for us in these verses is the most glorious birth announcement ever, ever made. I'm sure many of you have received a birth announcement. Perhaps you have made one as a parent. I remember, well, our firstborn son, CJ. When he was born, we decided to print up the birth announcement. This is crazy, but I can still remember selecting the paper on which the announcement was to be printed. It was linen. and the ribbed linen. The most expensive paper you could buy. I'm thinking, I want the finest parchment for my son, for my firstborn son. And on it, we put a photo of the cutest baby face ever captured on film. <laughs> I said film. That dates me, doesn't it? Film. You kids, we used to use film once for photography. And we sent it out. Oh, to a few of our closest friends. I'm not mistaken, we sent it out to 150 to 200 people. Because we wanted everyone to know that our firstborn son had arrived. 
By the time, however, we got to our fourth child, hey, do you know, do you know that Steve was born? Got the news? Great. All right. Oh, Steven's here. Steven, I love you just the same, buddy. I love you just the same. Life was a little busier the time we got around to the fourth child, okay? Oh, it's shameful, isn't it? Oh, I love you, buddy. Oh. And so goes the birth announcements. Oh, church, what we have here this morning in this text is none other than the birth announcement of the Father in heaven, of his very own firstborn son. Oh, it was the angel as a messenger who actually gave the announcement. But we also see in verse 15, which I'll get to in a little bit, that this announcement really came from the Lord himself. So let us read verses 8 now through 14 as we continue the story. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Imagine being there. Imagine, if you can, receiving a birth announcement from God. Instead of tearing into a stationary envelope, containing a birth announcement. The heavens were torn open and an angel of the Lord appeared. And what was their response? Oh, very fittingly. It was fear. It was fear. Listen, having a strange being show up in your backyard in the middle of the night would freak just about anyone out, let alone an angelic warrior. But note, there was more going on here than just an impromptu angelic visit. The drowsy, familiar night suddenly exploded in brightness. The lights were instantly turned on. It says in verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them. By the way, something neither Zechariah nor Mary had seen when they had received their angelic visitation. Forget the linen stationery. This was a birth announcement delivered in person and delivered in glory. The glory of the Lord. Well, what is this glory that we're talking about on this Christmas day? It was this. It was the beauty. It was the brightness of God made visible. It was the visible manifestation of God. It was the very product of His presence. 
The glory of the Lord was God's self-revelation to man. After 400 years plus of inglorious silence, God chooses once again to reveal His divine glory. But you know what? He doesn't reveal it in the temple. He doesn't reveal it among the burnt animal sacrifices. He does not reveal it in the holy of holies. He reveals His glory where? In the fields, among lowly shepherds, at night. Why? Well, because as we've already learned in the book of Acts, of which Luke is also the author, the glory of God is not located any longer in the temple. It's located in a person. And the birth announcement begins with these words, verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Literally, I am bringing you the gospel, the good news that will be for all people. What is the gospel? As we see in our text, it's a baby. It's a person. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And with this angelic, glorious announcement comes the baby description. Oh, we don't get weight, no length, no hair color, no eye color. It's not a description of physical attributes, is it? No, it's a description of his divine calling, of his divine nature, of his divine glory. Verse 11, he, this baby, is the Savior, meaning deliverer, our Redeemer. Our Redeemer from what? From our very own sin. He is be not only a savior, he is the Messiah, meaning the anointed one. He is the coming king. And lastly, see, he is the Lord. Oh, that must have been stunning. He is the Lord. You see, the word Lord is the Greek translation for the Hebrew word used for God, Yahweh. In other words, oh, he's a savior. He's the anointed one. And he is God, God in the flesh, who has come as the anointed king to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and Satan and to rule over us forevermore. He is the gift of glory, unwrapped for all people. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this day in Isaiah 40, verse 5. When we read, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God, you see, has always revealed His glory in creation. At times in the New Testament, as you're probably aware, He revealed Himself in what is called the Shekinah glory. Right? Do you remember the stories in the tabernacle, among His people? 
As a pillar of fire by night, he revealed his glory and presence. By a pillar of cloud by day, he revealed his presence and led his people. He revealed himself in the temple, on the sacrifices. He revealed the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. But those were all impersonal manifestations of his very presence. But the day was coming. The day was coming when God would manifest his glory personally and more fully in his son Jesus. And that day was this day. That day was Christmas. I believe that the kind of glory of God revealed here in this heavenly announcement in the fields among the shepherds not only spoke of the magnitude of this event, but spoke of the very glory of the one who was born. Jesus Christ is the revelation of the glory of the Lord, just as Isaiah and the prophets had promised. We read in Hebrews 1.3, He, that is Christ, is the radiance, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We read in John 1.14, And the Word, that's Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus is the glory of God. He is the gift of glory unwrapped. Do you know God this morning? Do you want to know God this morning? Look to Jesus. Do you want to see God this morning? Look to Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, we read, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. In fact, we read once again in John's wonderful prologue to his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 18, that we cannot see God the Father. Why can't we see God the Father? Because he is invisible. God the Father is spirit. But it is Jesus who came, God who came in the flesh that makes God the Father known to us. How often have you heard the statement, as I have? Hey, in the end, don't we all, all faiths, all religions, worship the same God? Can't we just agree with that? Some refer to him as Allah. Others refer to him as Yahweh. But isn't it all, in the end, one and the same? Well, friends, Jesus is God. Jesus is the glory of God. If you do not know Jesus as such, you don't know my God. And you don't know the God of the Bible. 
if you do not bow down and worship Jesus as God and as Lord, you and I, we're not worshiping the same God. Muslims will never call Jesus God. Neither will an Orthodox Jew. Jehovah Witnesses will never say that Jesus is God, big G, capital G, i.e. equal to God. Why? Because they believe that God the Father created Jesus. And a similar thing goes for the Mormons. Jesus was never created. He's always existed alongside God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity in all eternity. Jesus Christ was made flesh at Christmas to reveal to us the glory of God, to redeem us from our sin, and to rule over us forevermore. Catch the three R's. He came to reveal God, to redeem us from our sin and God's wrath. And number three, to rule over us, that we may worship God forevermore. Jesus is the glory of God, unwrapped for you and for me. Why do I say you and me? We read in verse 10 that his good, that his birth, excuse me, his birth is good news. The gospel. For whom? For all people. All Jews and all the nations. But then we come to verse 11. Do you see it in your text? Verse 11. We come to these words. For unto you is born this day. Unto you could be translated, for you is born this day. For who? For the shepherds to whom the angel was speaking. But why shepherds? Have you ever stopped to think about it? Maybe you have as you've gone through your Advent readings this Christmas. Why did God the Father choose to announce the glorious birth of a son? The greatest event in history, at least up to this point, and announce it to a bunch of shepherds. Why would he do that? See, there's some things you must know about shepherds. They were on the very bottom of the social ladder in Jewish society. They were illiterate hirelings. They were considered second-class citizens. To quote one author, they shared the same unenviable status as tax collectors and dung sweepers. For you children, dung sweepers are those who sweep poop. That was how shepherds were viewed. They were outcasts. They were misfits. They were not trusted. To quote another scholar, to buy wool, milk, or a kid. By the way, kid is a young goat, young goat, okay? <laughs> From a shepherd. Was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. Because of their profession, 
Shepherds were considered ceremonially unclean because of their handling of sheep. As such, they were restricted to the outer courts of the temple. Yet God came in His glory, not to the temple, to make His grand announcement. No. He came to the very people who were prohibited from entering the temple, the so-called sinners, to the outcast, to the lowest of low. Does that surprise you? Well, this baby, born in a manger, would grow to be known as a friend of sinners, Mark 2, to proclaim the good news to the poor and liberty for the oppressed, Luke 4. In other words, the birth of Christ, my friends, was for all people, yes, even the lowest of the low, who is excluded. What category of people are excluded from the good news of great joy? No one, not you, not me. No matter how distant you may feel from God this morning, oh, there is good news of great joy for you and for me. God didn't come down from heaven to meet you halfway. He came from heaven all the way to the shepherded hillsides of Palestine, all the way to a feeding trough in a little town called Bethlehem. That's how far he came for you and me. Friends, do you hear the heartbeat of God yet? Oh, of his scandalous grace and his love for you and for me. God cares about the weak. God cares about the lowly. He cares about the helpless. And he cares about the oppressed. And he identifies with them as well. For it is Jesus who one day call himself in John 10, the good shepherd. But God didn't just identify with the lowly. You understand? He became the lowly as well as a baby born in a manger. Let's just take that first part. God became a baby. That's worth more than a sermon, or I could give it this morning. But to quote one author, the God who roared, who could order armies and empires like pawns on a chessboard, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder. I can only echo the words of J.I. Packer when he says, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. The incarnation that God took on flesh and became a baby. Even if the lowly shepherds could have anticipated such news, they could not have been prepared for what was coming next. For we read in verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. Here we go. 
wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Not a mansion, but a manger. A stinky animal stall. To drive this point home, let me quote from author Philip Yancey as he speaks of Queen Elizabeth II and her visit to the United States. Quote, Reporters delighted in spelling out the logistics involved. Her 4,000 pounds of luggage. Imagine the overage charges, okay? That'll be $830,000. that cash or credit, man? And this 4,000 pounds of luggage included two outfits for every occasion. A morning outfit, i.e. for grieving. A morning outfit in case someone died. 40 pints of plasma. And white kid leather toilet seat covers. She brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. A brief visit of royalty to a foreign country can easily cost $20 million. In meek contrast, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendants present and nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feeding trough. Indeed, the event that divided history and even our calendars into two parts may have had more animal than human witnesses. And may I add, the testimonies of those who were there, the shepherds, were not even valid in the court of law. Let's just briefly retrace our steps. A child is born to an unwed mother who is a virgin under the lingering scent of scandal. The Son of God is born. The child who is Savior, Messiah, God in the flesh, is born in a feeding trough. The only witnesses that we know, other than the animals, were the despised shepherds, whose testimony few would have believed anyway. By the way, the wise men would come, but it'd be up to two years later. Sorry if that ruins your picture of the manger, okay? Go back to the Bible on that one, all right? Furthermore, this announcement of the king's birth, although foretold, is not announced to the religious leaders. No, it's not announced to the political leaders of the day, but only to shepherds in the cloak of dark on the outskirts of a small village named Bethlehem. Oh, I love this story. Some just say it's a cute myth, but I hope by now you see, first of all, it's not cute. Secondly, If this were just a myth conceived by men to convince a skeptical world, do you think this is the way it really would have gone down? Really? Not a chance. Get real. No. 
if I was writing the story, if I was directing the story, I'd be doing press releases all around Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. I'd be doing the Twitter feeds, whatever that is. I'd be doing also a little damage control with this Mary thing, okay? My advanced setup team would not be a solo, long-haired man wearing camel hair, eating locusts in a desert named John the Baptist. No, it would not be. I'd be working at the temple priest. I'd be working on the political correspondence. Forget our room at the inn. I'd be running all Bethlehem. And I'd be clearing the animals out of there because the king is coming. That's what I would have done. That's what I would have written if it was not true and it was a myth. Oh, but I'm so grateful God's ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And I'm so grateful for that. The reality is that God did prepare a way for the coming of His Son. He did it through His Word. He did it through the prophets. We're told the prophets, as we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 10, they preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. They preached the things to come that we are reading about today. Quote, things into which angels long to look. Oh, long to look. Well, you know what? On this day, oh, the angels were looking. And they were looking intensely. Oh, yes, they were. But even if the angels could not fully comprehend such divine condescension, such divine love, such a wondrous Savior who would come to earth to save His people, who would come as a baby in a manger. Even if they didn't understand the fullness of that, they understood the gravity of the moment. For we hear the skies, the heavens opening up. We hear an angelic host, an army of angels proclaiming in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among them with, with whom he is pleased. The God of the universe has come to make peace with us. How? By bearing our flesh, by walking in our footsteps, by living that perfect life that we could not live, and by taking our sins upon his cross, bearing our sins, that we may be forgiven and free. That we sinners, that we the outcasts would know the peace of God. That we who received Christ in this wonderful gift of his son would know his favor. That we would dwell with our king forevermore. Maybe you can't comprehend fully either what occurred on Christmas Day or its implications. In one sense, I'm with you. It's all too great, all too glorious for me to fathom. But you know, I'm not sure how much the shepherds understood either. But I know this. When they heard the good news of great joy, they did not sit idly by on those hillsides outside of Bethlehem. No, what did they do? They hurried off. They hurried off to see the God of glory unwrapped. They hurried off to hear 
God's heartbeat. His baby son. For the first time. We read in verses 15 to 20. In conclusion. When the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Oh, I love that. They went with what? With haste. With haste to see their Savior, their Messiah, the unwrapped glory of God, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The shepherds, they didn't come bearing gifts to the newborn king. They didn't have any. The shepherds came in their filthy shepherd garments. Why? Because they had no other change of clothes. No, the shepherds came with haste just as they were. And you know what? They found Jesus just as they had been told. Oh, they heard. They saw the heartbeat of God. Church, come. Come with haste this morning to Jesus. Come just as you are. You may feel like you have nothing to bring to Him. You're right, you don't. That's why He says, come as you are. You say All I can bring is the mess that's within me right now. Maybe you're you're just full of bitterness. Battling anger. Or maybe just disappointment. Right now. You know what? You're tired. You're tired of putting on the smiles. You're tired to what seems to you putting on the Christmas act and joy. And you feel a little hollow. You feel even hopeless. The reality is, if that's you, you're looking for glory. You're looking for God in all the wrong places. The glory that you seek, the heartbeat that you long to hear, is found in the lowly, humble Christ who came for shepherds, who came for sinners, just like you and me. Come now. Come with haste to Jesus.